Good morning, Foothill Church. My name is Angie Vincent. I'm a covenant partner. Um, my husband and I teach the premarital class, and I also serve on staff in finance. Um, today's scripture is found in 2 Peter chapter 3. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that, my, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the day of the, com the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thanks be to God. Um, I think there's a couple different kinds of people in the world. Maybe you're, how many of you um, kind of love uh, the time of year where we're moving into, where the nights uh, draw in more and you can like light a fire and like you love a wee blanket and a hot cocoa and that's like your kind of like night. How many of you guys are like that? Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> so... My family went to the beach on Thanksgiving, and the Lord in his kindness has let us live in, in Southern California now. Um, I've spent the last half of my life in Ireland and in Northern Ireland. And uh, I would say our, this season for me, it was, it was a characterized by just waiting, like waiting it out. Um, because you go to work in the dark. Because the sun isn't up until, I don't know, quarter to nine or so. So it's kind of like still dense. in the dead of winter. It's after nine. Uh, it sets around four. So you go to work in the dark. You come home in the dark. Uh, and it's that thick, gloomy layer of like clouds. So 
if you're driving, even during the day, you have your headlights on. It's just dim and dark. And I hated it, hated that. <laughs> like I couldn't wait. I'm a lizard. So get me in the sun and I just need to like bask in it and uh, just set me on a hot rock for hours and I'm, I'm fine. So, but there's this just sense of like waiting in the dark. And that's really what uh, I want us to think about today is this waiting in the dark. Because in many ways, the Christian life and life really in general is, is that. Um, we find ourselves in these seasons of kind of waiting um, we begin this series through Advent. Um, the word Advent, um, if you don't know or haven't really celebrated that, it's not part of your pastor tradition. It's from the Latin word Adventus, which really just means coming or arrival. Um, and it's a sense of like, we're waiting for someone to arrive. We're waiting for someone to come um, within that. And so if we think about the season of Advent, um, Maybe you didn't grow up celebrating that. I, I grew up in a couple different church traditions. So as a younger child did, but then like for a lot of my um, uh, adult life didn't um, celebrate Advent. But I, Advent is to Christmas what like Lent is to Easter. It's, it's really, uh, if we just skip straight to the bright lights of Christmas, uh, we miss something. The, the light of Christmas shines brighter when we acknowledge the shadows of night before the breaking of the dawn. Advent symbolizes this present situation that the church is in, in what the Bible calls these last days, as God's people wait for the return of Christ in glory to consummate his eternal kingdom. And the church is in a similar situation to Israel um, in that they were at the end of the Old Testament. So the people of Israel, uh, God's people find themselves towards the end of the Old Testament in exile. They're, they've been exiled out of the promised land. The temple's been desecrated. They've been taken away to Babylon. They're, there's a sense of just waiting and hoping in prayerful expectation for the coming of what has been promised to them. This savior, they've been, they were promised a Messiah who would come and rectify this situation. Israel then is looking back to God's gracious actions on their behalf if you remember, as we went through the Exodus, they're looking back while they're in exile to this 400 year period of slavery in Egypt um, where God sent a, redeem, uh, a redeemer, someone to lead them out of slavery. They also now have this hope while they're in exile that a Messiah would come and help rectify the situation. And so here they are in this waiting period once again. We find actually between the Old Testament and the New Testament about uh, 400 years pass, and there's just this period of silence. There's no prophets sent. There's, there's no God speaking um, through any mouthpiece at all. There's just like this 400-year period of kind of silence before Jesus comes. And so there's, in the same way, we, the church during Advent, we, we look back to Christ's first coming and celebration, Christmas, Whilst we also look forward in eager anticipation, in a sense of longing that Christ would come again, that he would establish his kingdom that will reign forever. And so in light of that, we sing the words that we sang this morning, right? Listen to them. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom, captive, exiled Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Then it's rejoice, rejoice, because the Savior has come, the Messiah, the long-awaited, the long-promised Messiah had finally arrived. 
But at the moment, they're in lonely exile. 400 years of slavery in Egypt they had experienced, 400 years of silence. I wonder what it would have been like to be a believer in Yahweh, believer in God during that time. I imagine that'd be really hard. I, I wonder what that would do to your faith if you lived during that 400-year period. Makes us kind of be really thankful that we've got like completed scriptures and, and a church to come and worship in. But imagine just living your life and not just 400 years of silence of God. No prophets, no active kind of what seems like God would be doing. Be really tempted to just kind of think maybe this was all just something of the past. Maybe this was good for our parents or our grandparents or great-grandparents, but where's God now? This mourning and lonely exile, this darkness that comes before the breaking of the dawn. And often that's what we find ourselves in. We find ourselves in these dark periods, right? Um, Where we wonder, um, where our faith gets tested, where we wonder if God sees us. Some of us have lost loved ones way earlier than expected during COVID the last few years. I'm all too familiar as some of you of what it's like waiting for biopsy results and then finding out it's actually cancer. Maybe you're in a difficult, dark period of marriage or parenting. Maybe you'd, you'd love to be in that period of, of having a spouse and it is lonely exile that you feel. John of the Cross talks about this dark night of the soul, this period in our lives where we kind of have to like deconstruct everything we know about ourselves, our identity, and and actually face the reality of life and rebuild that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about Advent. He says, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. I wonder if that's you this morning. Are we troubled in soul? Do you know all too well your imperfections? As we reflect on violence, injustice, the chaos of our world, we only need to turn on the news for that, the evil that is pervasive in the world, it, it should cause us to cry out to God to make things right. This prayer of like Maranatha, like, Lord, come quickly. To put death's dark shadows to flight. Our exile in the present makes us look forward to a future exodus. Our own sinfulness, our own need for grace that leads us to pray for the Holy Spirit to renew his work now in conforming us into the image of Christ before his return. I wonder if the events of the last few years have made it easier to feel a a sense of, of longing of expectation, of waiting. We fear, fear, feel the, the sheer weight of unmet expectations, a grief that all is not right in the world, that all is not as it should be, and that there is no normal to return to. But maybe the last few years have been a grace to us if we'll allow them to be. Because our ultimate hope not just for a, 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 a few years or a present situation or crisis, but our ultimate hope in riding the world isn't in a vaccine. It's not in election results. or not in easing of inflation. Our ultimate hope is that Christ will come again. 
Christ who will heal the world, not just of viruses or, or political idolatry or economic greed, but all manner of, of disease, all manner of death caused by our rebellion and sin against God himself, that all creation groans for that day, as Romans says. That all of creation is just groaning under the, the curse of sin, waiting for the Messiah to come and make it all right once and for all. Maybe you feel that weight of waiting this morning. Life is maybe full of devastation or disappointment or even just uncertainty of what the future may hold. But the hope for us this morning is the same hope that those people in the Old Testament had. We look back to their experiences and we can map ours onto that in some ways and realize that we have the same hope that they had, the hope of a coming Messiah. He came first as a stranger, as a, as a baby in weakness. He comes rejected and despised by his own, missed by most. But the next time he comes, the next time he comes will be different. <laughs> no one will miss him. No one will be confused as to who he is as he comes in king and ruler, judge of all, where every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But we wait in this in-between. Karl Barth uh, puts it this way. He says, unfulfilled and fulfilled promises are related to each other as are dawn and sunrise. Both promise and in fact the same promise. If anywhere at all then, it is precisely in the light of the coming of Christ that faith has become Advent faith. The expectation of future revelation. But faith knows for whom and for what it is waiting. It is fulfilled faith because it lays hold of a, fil of a fulfilled promise. See, we know way more than than even they did in the, in the exile. We know more than those in the 400 year pay, period of silence. We know for whom and for what we are waiting for. You and I have the unique advantage of vantage. We look back to all the Old Testament promises and they're all fulfilled in the coming of Christ. They're all fulfilled in this uh, first advent, right? Why we celebrate Christmas so, so much. Why it's a Christian holiday. I know it seems like it isn't sometimes. It becomes about gifts and giving and, you know, that Lexus with a bow on top and whatever else, like, is supposed to happen at Christmas. But, like, the reason that we actually celebrate Christmas is that the Messiah came. And he fulfilled all of these generations of prophecies, we have that advantage of looking back and having that confidence in who he is. The testimony of the New Testament saints and his faithfulness to them. Their testimony to us in the scriptures. And we see it from the very beginning of the scriptures. I want us to just see this thread that's woven all throughout. Um, we see again people who are exiled. Adam and Eve, right? The very first people. And they're exiled from this garden um, that God had put them in because of their sin, because of their rebellion. Um, and because they listen to the lies of the serpent. And so Jesus, uh, God is dealing with them. And this is what he says in Genesis 3.15. We see the very first um, promise of a Messiah. This is him speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head um, and you will bruise his heel. There's this very first allusion to what is coming. The, there's a woman who will have an offspring who, who will strike, uh, though you'll strike his heel, 
he will crush your head. Derek Thomas, a uh, scholar, he, he notes this. He says the establishment that, that this, this event here in, in Genesis 3.15, it establishes the parameters by which God will redeem his people from their sin. From the earliest times, Genesis 3 has been called the Proto-Evangelium because it, it is the first note of God's redemptive intention following the fall of the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve failed to obey the terms of the covenant of works, God didn't destroy them. He had every right to. That would have been justice for sure, but he doesn't. He, he establishes a covenant of grace to them by promising a savior, one who would restore the kingdom that had now been destroyed. We see that God's method of grace is costly. Um, the heel, as it were, will be, will be struck. We see this metaphor in the context that this this strike, uh, this blow that the serpent um, gives is the initial kind of, uh, uh, it's our initial indication that this is going to require the shedding of blood, this substitutionary blood. But in the end, Satan is crushed. He is defeated. We also see this establishes this kind of cosmic, cosmic explanation of the disorder of the world. Adam and Eve we're at fault to be sure. They're punished for that. But we see here that Satan is at work. Um, there's no mention of Satan specifically, only this uh, figure of a serpent. But we see throughout the scriptures, this serpent, um, he, he, he grows, as it, as it were, into this dragon of Revelation 12, where he's called a murderer, a liar, a deceiver. And so the actions of Adam and Eve are inextricably kind of interwoven with the work of the Satan, this work of, of the serpent that's here. And so we have this introduction of evil into the world. But we also see the principle of victory over that evil. This principle of the victory of the coming of God, this kingdom of God that will be established over the kingdom of darkness. It's established from the very beginning, the very first glimpse of our rebellion is met with a promise that evil will not reign forever. This is echoed by Jesus in Matthew 16, where he says, the gates of hell, though they're set against us, they're set against the church, they're set against God's people, it won't be victorious. <coughs> Excuse me. The work of redemption is unfolding. Even if it's unfolding in enemy territory, even if it's unfolding with the deadly and tireless opposition of Satan and his minions, the promises of God are unfolding. The story of redemption is not in, in any kind of sense this kind of cliffhanger, right? Maybe you binge watch kind of like a Netflix series and how they get you is every episode ends on like this kind of cliffhanger. Well, I gotta watch one more and see what happens. And then that episode has a cliffhanger. Well, I got to watch one more and get like you, just this insatiable need. Well, I don't know how this is going to end. And yet that's not how Christian uh, hope operates in the midst of evil. Though we walk through the valley of shadow of death, we have a shepherd who leads us, who sets a table in the midst of our enemies, who comforts us in there because we already know how this ends. It's not a cliffhanger in that sense. There's, it's not uncertain of what the outcome will be. We know what the outcome is and that outcome and the certainty of it should impact how then we should live. So Christian discipleship is, is worked out in the context of the assurance of victory rather than the prospect of defeat. 
We know that the ultimate victory has already been won. We're equipped. We're ready for battle. Even with the uncertainty of what might be in our immediate future, of our immediate circumstances. But all of those are set in the context of our ultimate victory. Our ultimate battle has already been taken place. And it's already been won on our behalf. And so an assured future changes our present. It changes how we wait in the dark. And so though we wait in the dark, we don't wait um, in uh, the way the world waits. It's a different kind of waiting. And so that's what I want us to kind of look at. Why we wait or why we watch. The Bible uses different kind of languages and different kind of ways in that and interchangeable ways. So it talks about staying awake, keeping watch. Um, uh, in that way. And so let's look at our, our text this morning. Peter tells us right why he's written these letters. And, and so I'm going to just look at five kind of observations of this that will hopefully help us this morning. So the first thing why we kind of watch is we remember past promises. So we remember, which is hard because we are forgetful people at times. And so he writes, he says, this is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way to remember. He wants us to remember that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so he's like, I want you to remember all the way back thousands of years into the Old Testament how the Lord has been faithful. He's predicted things through, our, through the prophets. They've all come true. They've all been fulfilled and culminated in Christ. And I want you to remember. Part of that is it's just a family trait. That's, that's what we should be as, as Christians. As followers of Jesus, we are rememberers. We're not forgetful people. We remember. Um, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 and 6 says this, but you are not in darkness, brothers, brothers and sisters. So we are not people of the dark. He says, for that day to surprise you, that day that he's talking about is the return of Christ, the second advent of Christ. He says, so that shouldn't surprise you like a thief would, for you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night of darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Let us remember, let us, let that remembrance then um, spur us on to be awake, be sober. That is to be ready for Christ's return. In the Old Testament, they would raise these, um, what they call Ebenezer's, right? We even sing that song, here I raise my Ebenezer. And uh, they would stack these rocks so that future generations would be like, hey, what's up with the pile of rocks? And they could tell them the story of what God had done in his faithfulness in that moment. There were these memorials that they would remember and not forget. We just celebrated Thanksgiving where we, we stop and we give thanks. We remember um, God's goodness to us, his grace to us, the way that that is manifested in our lives uniquely. So Thanksgiving in some ways should be an everyday holiday for, for Christians because we remember. So that's one. We remember past promises. Two then, those promises produce a hope and a confidence in us. And so this is what we're gonna see. A future hope, that is promised and assured to us impacts how we wait. It impacts Advent um, for us, this season of waiting. So uh, in verse nine, he says, the, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. We'll come back to that in verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come. 
right? So there's that assurance. The Lord will come again, and it's going to come like a thief. It'll, it'll be when you don't expect it, when, when we're unsurprised, when, you know, when the world isn't, isn't, isn't looking. Now, we're, we should be different. We should be ready. We shouldn't be surprised. We've seen that already. And then in verse 11, because of that then, because the day of the Lord will come, he says in verse 11, since... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of, of God? So he says, hey, this future thing that's assure of, that should produce something in us now. We should be a certain kind of people because since that's going to happen, then this is what should be happening. And part of that is it produces a hope and a confidence in us. Jesus will write in Revelation, he writes to these churches, um, things we can learn in that. And this is what he writes to a church in Smyrna. He says uh, to the church of Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So they're receiving persecution and slander. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. So they are about to suffer. He says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. So they're going to go through some darkness. They're going to go through a period of, of, of waiting, of, of probably being tempted that is the Lord really with us? Is this really worth it? But what does he say? He says, be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So here's, the, here's what he's saying to them. Hey, listen, you, you're going to go through some tribulation. It might even be tribulation unto death. Be faithful because it's not this first death that you need to be afraid of. I've already given you the crown of life so that the second death isn't something that you need to fear. Second death is this final judgment that we will all face after our natural first death. Those that are found in Christ have nothing to fear. He has won the victory for them. He's given them the crown of life. They'll enter into their eternal rest in the presence of Jesus. It's those that are found apart from Christ that have to worry and, and be hurt by the second death, being cast into eternal darkness with Satan and his minions. In other words, don't be surprised if your faith, that is your, your waiting, your watching, your anticipation for Christ to come again, that's what our hope and our faith is in. He says, don't be surprised if that costs you something. Jesus actually promised it would, that, hey, you will suffer on my behalf. Your faith will cost you something. Which is why some people stop waiting. It, it costs too much. It, it just can't, it can just seem to, the, the price is too high. There are other things to pursue that are far more pleasurable and comfortable than to stay awake. And yet, over and over and over, the promise of God to his people is one of comfort, is one of justice, is one of making all uh, wrongs right in an eternal cosmic sense and not just in our immediate temporal situations. This is what he says in Isaiah 40. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity, that is our, our sin, is pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. 
a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is an, uh, an allusion to John the Baptist in the wilderness crying out, preparing the way for, for the Messiah. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All those rough places are made smooth. Our highs and our lows are leveled by the coming of the Messiah and his promises. And all will see the glory of the Lord revealed in that time. And that should impact. It should give us a comfort. It should give us a hope and a confidence. But it should also produce something else in us as well. It should produce this power for holiness and peace and repentance. And so look at verses 13 to 14. But according to his promise, we are waiting. So let's just stop there because this is, this is the critical, right? How are we waiting? How are we waiting according to that? According to his promises. So it's a different kind of waiting, right? So I hate waiting. I really do. I'm, um, the Lord gives me lots of opportunities to grow in patience. I wish he would stop. Um, <laughs> So I took my brother when he was here to, uh, to the west side, like Venice and Santa Monica, and I did it at the wrong time of day. And it took me like th almost three hours to get home. Like, it's, I don't know, it's like 40 miles or something. And uh, I'm like, well, you just got the true like LA experience. And we just sat and thankfully we had a lot to kind of talk about and it was, it was okay. But I, I'm, I'm not a patient person by nature. The Lord, I think, has is, is helped me to... to uh, growing that to some degree, um, but I still lose my cool. I still lose my patience um, for sure. But waiting is different than just kind of sitting in traffic. It's different than Christian waiting. It's different than just in like the doctor's office. Um, I'm old enough to remember going to the doctor's office and they actually provided you like magazines to look at. This is before we all had phones. Now I can't imagine anybody lifting a magazine in an office, but because it, it was, you might be there a while. You had to just bide your time. It's just like, I'm just distracting myself so that I don't have to stare at that clock and listen to it just tick and tick and tick while waiting. That's just kind of like bore, bored waiting. It's just distracted waiting. But Christian waiting is different. It's active waiting. It's, it's not just a, I'm just sitting around waiting to bide my time. There's, I'm to be about something in this waiting because of what I'm waiting for. And so according to his promises, we are waiting for the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Praise God. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. I want you to maybe think about it this way. Let's imagine, you know, we're all teenagers again. And, um, or maybe some of you are, so this isn't as hard for you. But, but um, let's imagine um, at 35 you were given a trust fund of $100 million, but you couldn't access that till 35. Would your teenage years and would your 20s and early 30s be any different? Would that make a difference? Knowing that you had a $100 million trust fund that you were gonna have access to at 35. Now, you, you don't have any access to it at all until then. But would it change your approach up to 35? knowing that that was there. 
Would you be devastated if in your early 20s you tried to start a business and it failed and you went bankrupt? Would that devastate you? Probably not. Why? Because you know you're already going to be a millionaire a <laughs> hundred times over. You try again. You do something else. You'd probably be more willing to take risks and have more confidence in taking those risks. Your future plans would probably be different if that were true. Do you think it would help you get through difficult times in your 20s? I'm guessing probably so. I think it would change. Now, maybe it wouldn't all be good. I don't know, but let's not press the analogy too, too hard. But it, it would change our future now, knowing that you had some secured future financially in that kind of way. It would change what you hope and dream of. It would change a lot of different things. And I think in that same way, this is what Paul, uh, Peter is getting at. Hey, we're waiting according to his promise. And so then that should produce something in us now. We should be a certain kind of people because of that future inheritance that's guaranteed. It should change how we walk through darkness. It should change how we have to walk through suffering or hard times or through uncertainty or unclarity or through grief or even in the face of our own death. All of that changes. Christian hope is different. We don't grieve as the world grieves. We don't lose hope as the world loses hope. We're to be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. We're to, we're to walk in our discipleship. We're going to talk more about this in the series, so I'm not going to press this. Probably like week four, we'll get more into some of that. Um, so I'm not going to press this point too much. Another thing it does, number four then, is it, it, this hope of a secured future guards us from error. What does he say in verses uh, 17 to 18? He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever to the day of eternity. Amen. It guards us from error. The error was that they were saying, listen, it's been like 2,000 years. You guys have been going on and on about this. Your forefathers and their forefathers and nothing has changed. The world is still the same. Give up already. Like, what does it matter? And that's an area that we can be tempted into, right? Especially when it becomes hard. Or when it seems like, as David looks around his enemies, like all these other people who don't care about God are just profiting. They're living like fat cats. And here we are suffering because of very easy to just shed all that and be like, man, nothing has changed. Maybe this is all some kind of fairy tale that my parents and grandparents and all these traditions have constructed. I can just deconstruct all this and just do whatever I want. Like I, none of this really matters. That's the error that he's trying to save them from. He wants them to be stable. He wants them to be firm, right? He says, don't lose your own stability in this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the coming savior. Jesus tells a parable in Mark 13 about a man who owned an estate um, and he had uh, his, his workers of his household 
servants, um, all the kind of, imagine like a great grand estate and all the landscapers and I don't know, Downton Abbey or whatever it is uh, in that kind of way. But the master of the house is going away on a long trip, but he sets them about their work and he says, be watchful. I'm, I'm coming back. I'm returning, right? And it's that expectation of his return that's the animating force of their work, of their watchfulness, even in the dark. Even as a year or two years go on, it's the expectation that the master is coming back and we're to be found about the master's work that he's given us to. That's the whole reason this household exists. If the, if the master's not coming back, then what are we about maintaining this for? Like, let's just all like sell the house, split the profits and go find other stuff to do. Like, why do I still want to be maintaining this house? The guy that lives here and owns it isn't even here right now right? It's, it's the, no, uh, he's coming back. He, he's coming back and he's going to pay us our due reward in that. And we need to be found doing what he has given us the task to. We are here to, uh, to, to be about the master's work even while he's away. And so we're to stay awake, which in, in, in biblical terms means not to be led astray. It's not to to, we're to be on guard, we're to be vigilant, we're to be watchful, we're to endure to the end. But how easy it is to not do that after a while, right? How easy it is to think, well, maybe he's not coming back or maybe not while I'm still alive. So what does it really matter? How easy to be distracted by things that lead you astray from the goal of your faith, the salvation of our souls, how easy to become so absorbed by the ways of the world that we're alarmed when God's ways seem so incredibly contrary to our own. How easy to drop our guard and before, you know, it's certain activities and responsibilities have kind of taken over your life so that the master wouldn't even recognize it as being about his household of faith. And yet we're told to stay awake. The Lord will come. How we wait guards us from error. The error that we think he's not coming back. The Lord will come. The life of the church has lived in the space between these two advents of Jesus. And then lastly, as we close, this hope produces a patience in us as well. Or it should. Notice uh, what he says here in verses 7 to 10 and 15. He says, um, uh, verse 8, he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In verse 15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. See, the reason the Lord is waiting the reason the Lord doesn't come is because when he comes, that's it. Like justice will be enacted and those that are not covered by the blood of Christ will find themselves separated for eternity. But God seeks no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. And so he's giving us time to repent. And 2000 years, which is about how long it's been since Jesus was here the first time to the Lord is a couple days. It's a couple days. What is time to, to the Lord who creates time, who existed, pre-existed time, 
who stands outside of space and time as, as we know it, who's not bound by the same ways that we are bound by. What is time to him? What is slowness to him? It's his patience. It's his mercy. It's his grace to us that we might respond. And, and so he says, count the patience of the Lord as your salvation. We do our liturgy at the offering of being generous because the Lord is generous, but the Lord is patient. He is long-suffering. He's kind. That should produce that in us. And oh, how I can think of times that I have failed in that. And yet the Lord is kind and merciful. And it leads us to repentance once again. Are we patient people? Advent is this reminder that the church calendar is not the same as the world's calendar. Well, he's not returned in 2,000 years. You can probably ease up. You could probably just kind of go back to doing whatever you want. The master probably isn't going to be back anytime soon. Certainly not in your lifetime. What does it matter? But Advent also reminds us the hands on the clock are much later than we think they are. He could return at any moment. He must find us watching and waiting and prepared for his return. It's the reason we're a part of his household. And so may we remember that he is coming again, church. May we remember his return is certain. It is coming. And may that certain return produce a hope and confidence in us. May that hope produce a holiness and a peace and a repentance in us. May this hope guard us from error and waywardness. And may the certain hope of his return produce a patience in us. A patience not to give up. A patience uh, to walk even through those dark winter nights of the soul, knowing that the Lord is with us. The Lord is for us. All the things that we have sung about his goodness this morning are true and will come true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder from uh, Peter uh, once again, because we are a forgetful people. We get caught up in our lives. Um, sometimes uh, pain or grief, uncertainty, uh, produce doubt in us instead of hope. They produce an uh, a waywardness in us instead of uh, a certainty. They make us uh, spiritually sleepy and exhausted and weary. And so, Father, this morning, uh, we just ask that the hope of your return once again uh, would reanimate our, our, our hope, our confidence in you. You've given us your spirit. You've not left us alone. And so, Spirit, this morning, Will you uh, rekindle um, just that hope that we have in you? Uh, a hope that is far more certain than a, a $100 million trust fund could ever change us. A hope of eternity. Father, would you, uh, would you have your way even with us this morning? Would we hear you calling us back uh, to, to wake up from our sleepiness? Would you animate our uh, service to you, our love for you? our love for one another, our patience, um, 
in this life as we endure. And we ask this for your glory. Amen.